0: Case S02 E05 Slow Burn Shakespeare Part 3 of 6 Cutout, Cipher, Monster, Spy. In the previous two episodes, we looked at the questions surrounding Shakespearean authorship. To try to summarize, the whole mess into a single sentence, some people are pretty sure, for whatever reason, that Shakespeare didn't write any of the canon attributed to him. Some are sure that he only wrote certain bits, and some are sure that he not only wrote all his own stuff, but that he wrote other stuff besides under different names. And for a bit, we wandered off into a hypothetical about what would actually happen in the real world, if someone convincingly attributed Shakespeare's work to someone else. It was a bit grim, probably kind of a bit hyperbolic, but it served to demonstrate that if there are people invested in suppressing the Shakespeare authorship question and protecting the status quo, there are also people invested in proving some brand new answer that catapults them into the highest echelons of eternal fame. For those people, then, the issue isn't did Shakespeare write the works attributed to him? Because for them, that part of the equation is already answered, and the answer is no. And we'll get back to how sound that assumption is in due time. Instead, their concern is, if Shakespeare didn't write some or all of his own work, then who actually did? At long last, we will get started on the first three of the five theories, And we are going to start with The Cutout. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection, and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgments, and links to further reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this podcast. As you may recall, questions about Shakespeare's authorship didn't really surface, at least not publicly in writing, until 1848. Remember that random book on yachting by that New York lawyer Joseph Hart that wasn't actually much about yachting at all? That's the first documented instance we have so far, though I suspect with effort and time we might unearth earlier ones, Then there was that anonymous 1852 Who Wrote Shakespeare article published in the Chamber's Edinburgh Journal. And it might have been written by a Dr. Robert W. Jameson, but I'm yet to see compelling evidence of that. And we'll also probably never know quite what the readership of those publications were, basically how far abroad did that question spread upon the back of those publications. But this question appearing in print twice in such close succession hints at the fact that this doubt was abroad in the world, at least in conversation, in certain circles. That it should be picked up yet further by two more people only four years later makes it for me just too improbable that all four individuals woke up one day, each completely independently struck by the same thunderbolt. Anyway, to join the first two doubters that I've already mentioned, these two new doubters come along in 1856, and they are Delia Bacon and W.H. Smith, and they really light the fire under this new direction of thinking. Now, another thing to bear in mind as I move on here is what I said about the way that Elizabethan plays tended to be written. So the playwright would hand out the lines to the actors and then work with them through the rehearsals to get it just right and so on. This wasn't unique either to Shakespeare or to the time, but it feeds somewhat into this very first theory. I call it the cutout theory. Other people call it the groupist theory. But it feeds heavily into this theory of authorship, which argues that both members of the aristocracy and established Elizabethan playwrights, such as Christopher Marlowe, Robert Greene and Thomas Nash, were unacknowledged co-authors of works attributed to Shakespeare. So, one of the earliest groupists, as they're sometimes known, these groupist theory supporters, was Delia Bacon. No relation to the other Bacon we're going to come up against later on, Francis Bacon. Now, Delia Bacon was an American teacher and a writer based in Boston, and she argued that the author of Shakespeare's work was not one man, but many a secret cabal of aristocratic poets. I want to be in a secret cabal. Anyway, Delia developed friendships with several leading authors at the time, such as Ralph Waldo Emerson. You may remember his name came up in one of the earlier episodes. They apparently disagreed with her theory, but they admired her intellect and her interpretation of Shakespeare's works. Delia travelled from the US to England to write her book about her ideas. Putnam's monthly magazine published an article by her entitled William Shakespeare and his plays, an inquiry concerning them. But this was uniformly ill received, and no surprise. There was a glaring absence of supporting evidence. Further, many of the supposed members of her secret cabal were only ever hinted at in her works rather than explicitly named, with the exception of Sir Francis Bacon we're going to come back to him, and Sir Walter Riley. One can hardly wonder at its reception when Delia Bacon couldn't offer any compelling reasons for why anyone should believe this theory, nor much about who she proposed as alternatives. Others have described Delia Bacon's work as unreadable. I'm cautious about these criticisms because such matters are very subjective, and this was a woman, historically, trying to write about a subject that even now people are extremely territorial about, So what I would suggest is if you want to take this further, go and read her work and form your own opinion. Despite all of this, a friend of Ralph Waldo Emerson's, a man called Nathaniel Hawthorne, also read her work and found a publisher for her book entitled The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare. Though it took her over a decade to write, few bothered to read it except literary scholars and historians and they ripped it to shreds. And again, I'd like to stress, this was a historical attempt of a woman to have a public voice. So, form your own opinions. With the progression of time and an advancing mental illness, Delia began to believe that evidence about Shakespeare's authorship would be found in his tomb, and she sought permission to open it. This was, unsurprisingly denied, And as Delia Bacon became increasingly more ill and finally suicidal, she was committed to the Hartford Retreat for the Insane in England. She never returned to the US, passing away in the asylum only a couple of years later in 1859 at the age of 48. Despite Delia Bacon's general lack of success, interestingly, this first theory did not actually die with her. In fact, people took the idea itself as possibly having some merit, For whatever reason, Delia Bacon may not have had the capacity to marshal compelling evidence or build a persuasive case, but that didn't mean that there was no case at all. And so the idea quickly spawned clusters of other similar theories. Early alternatives included a little gaggle of disappointed politicians, Walter Raleigh as the leader, and others in the group included Francis Bacon, Lord Buckhurst, Edward de Vere, Edmund Spencer, and so on. Nearly a century later, by the 1930s, the theory of the seven Shakespeares had arrived. Sounds like a Sherlock Holmes novella. I really want to read this. So, this lucky circle of seven writers included Francis Bacon, Edward de Vere, Roger Manners, Christopher Marlowe, Walter Raleigh, Mary Sidney, and William Stanley. By the 1960s, a new group, the Oxford Syndicate, also sounds awesome. This was supposedly made up of Francis Bacon, Edward de Vere, William Herbert, Roger Manners, and Mary Sidney. Others have suggested Robert Greene, Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Nash. You can see, however, that the same general principle applies. Lots of people publishing under one name, and you've probably also noticed that in these groupist theories, in these cutout theories, Some names just come up again and again, and we're going to come back to a few of these in a bit. But what of Shakespeare in all these group theories? Well, in some, he is essentially a ghost, a fiction, as imaginary as any of the characters in his plays. Any relationship to people, living or dead, is, as one might say, purely coincidental. There is no real person called William Shakespeare involved in the writing, and the Glover's son in Stratford, who does exist is just a weird, messy coincidence, because people can and do have identical names to each other. In other versions of this cutout theory, this groupist theory, William Shakespeare of Stratford is as real as any of the writers, and he is involved, but he is a cutout, a frontman. Sometimes these theories position him as even an occasional actor. Sometimes he manages the group itself. Sometimes he just manages the real estate and money matters. Whatever the precise details of the particular theory in question, Shakespeare exists, but he isn't actually doing any of the writing. He is just a cutout who simply gets the credit for it, and others are the secret literary geniuses. Interestingly, these groupist theories of Shakespearean authorship tend to attract perhaps some of the most heated scepticism and scorn. One question that comes up is, well, how was this proposed group supposedly operated? Was it like a quilting bead? All the writers sat round a single table? Did they each write from different locations and they somehow spliced their work together? Did they each pen individual plays? Maybe some revitalized old projects, maybe several worked collaboratively in varying combinations on the same project, but how was it managed? Now, from my perspective, that's kind of nonsensical. We, we all find out ways to collaborate. When we have to work together on a group project, we just find ways to do it. And sometimes we will work together and sometimes I'll do a bit and someone else will do a bit. We'll email it to each other. We have that luxury. These guys obviously didn't. But you find different ways to collaborate. Just because you don't know how it was done doesn't mean it couldn't have happened. And we also know that collaboration from that era was perfectly normal anyway, it was obviously happening. The key difference, of course, was that unlike openly acknowledged and explicit collaborations, in this case, everyone was supposedly hiding behind this one pen name, Shakespeare, and that is more difficult to explain. So remember, these are supposedly celebrated, famous, publicly known figures and they're meant to be meeting up to collaborate on dozens of plays over the course of literally years, all without ever accidentally giving the game away. So the Earl of Oxford's carriage keeps rocking up at odd hours, the Lord Chancellor is in and out with papers in hand, the Countess of Pembroke frequents the place. People have been fascinated by the daily doings of the aristocracy since forever, and with prying eyes everywhere, gossiping servants, helpers, you know, decorating the set who just happened to pass this information on. People are so ready to gossip at the slightest hint of something interesting. How would it have been possible to maintain the secret for so long? Now, intriguingly, there is research by a physicist. Why is it always physicists? But anyway, there's this physicist uh, who did some research from Oxford University, and his name is David Robert Grimes and he actually calculated the average length of time one can keep a conspiracy before it ends up being leaked. Now, obviously, you have to assume perfect conditions, that is, everyone involved keeps absolutely silent about the matter and any external intrusions like journalists or investigators are successfully repelled. And he suggests if you're looking to keep a secret for more than a century, then you need to have less than 125 people involved in the plot. That sounds like a lot, but actually, that's not difficult to hit when you consider that this particular conspiracy involved something like 40 plays, and it spanned almost three decades. And after all, there may have been Shakespeare himself, if he existed. Then there were these famous writers, seven, ten, however many of them there were. There would have been their servants, any of their friends who were in on the secret, any wealthy patrons, plus any theatre workers, servants, assistants, actors who may have been floating around, set makers, costume designers, gophers and the like. Now, of course, we can come up with any number of suggestions, explanations, disguises, cloaks, daggers for how the day-to-day concealments might have been handled, but the problem remains a fairly stark one. Collaboration, sure, explicit, open, unsecretive collaboration, not a problem, not only believable, but extremely common in the day. But secret collaboration for 30 years among a large group of famous co conspirators? That is a much more difficult proposition to simply accept. Possible, but not very probable. And perhaps it was this sheer improbability that finally killed off the popularity of this theory. That's interesting in itself because we will end as we start by coming back to this very same cutout theory, this groupist theory. But for now, we will follow the crowds who are gradually filing out of the door in search of a much simpler theory. If many Shakespeare's was just too logistically implausible, wouldn't it make more sense if it was, instead, just one person? But who? I call this next theory the Bacon Cipher. The title is a bit more dramatic than accurate, but ciphers do play a fairly significant role in this story, so I'm going to keep it. Now this theory, like the three that i going to follow afterward, prefers to attribute the Shakespeare canon not to a group, but rather just to one lucky individual. And, no surprise, as my name for the theory it might have already insinuated, the true Shakespeare in this case is said to be Sir Francis Bacon, First Viscount St. Alban, Lord Verulam – I am honestly not making this stuff up – Attorney General, Queen's Counsel, Lord Chancellor of England, and nephew to William Cecil, the chief advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. Born in 1561, after falling into disgrace later in life, he died in 1626, aged 65, married but with no heirs. Baconia, as I will call this theory, Nobody else calls it that, by the way, so don't bother searching the internet for it. I don't know what you might find. Anyway, Baconia arrived in 1856 in the words of Delia Bacon, again, no relation, and in the writings of William Henry Smith. That's right, W.H. Smith. Seriously, he is the grandson of the eponymous bookstore owner. In the UK, we have these W.H. Smith stores. I don't know if they exist in other countries, but we do. So it's a fairly famous name here. Moving on. Remember... Delia Bacon started out as a sort of cutout theorist, a groupist theorist, and she had a suggestion of a group of Shakespeare's, but she wouldn't really name names other than to say that they were a secret cabal of aristocratic poets. Like I said, I want to be in a secret cabal. Anyway, with time, a lot of her focus shifted primarily onto just one candidate, Bacon, and both she and W.H. Smith essentially end up arguing that Bacon primarily or solely penned the works of Shakespeare. As I noted about Delia's work before, though, the theory starts out quite shakily, and the evidence is fairly sketchy and circumstantial. For instance, a primary Baconia argument rests on something called the Northumberland Transcript. This was found in 1867 by John Bruce, and this is alleged to be the only original text that contains both the names Bacon and William Shakespeare alongside the titles and quotations from the plays. The text also contains what appears to be a reference to Sir Henry Neville. So the mixture of factors has been taken as an allusion to links between Bacon, Shakespeare and Neville, potentially referring to the authorship of the Shakespeare canon. Hmm, I mean it's hardly the compelling Sherlock-esque clincher really, is it? In the quest for more proof, some Baconians searched further and looked even deeper at the writings and they seemed to stumble on something new. Sir Francis might just have gone full intrigue and secreted clues to his authorship in certain Shakespeare texts, using codes and ciphers, hence Bacon Cipher. First hinted at by Delia Bacon, but never fully explored by her, the idea was really taken up by one Ignatius L. Donnelly in 1880. And it very quickly caught on, as it seems lots of ideas in this oeuvre do. I sometimes wonder if there isn't a link between the way the brain responds to unpredictable reward stimuli like gambling and the way it responds when we're hunting for and think we're finding hidden cryptographic secrets. I mean, that's speculation, so let's get back to the story. Now, it wasn't entirely random for Delia Bacon or Donnelly to make this seemingly weird speculation because. So Francis Bacon had indeed developed what is known as the bilateral cipher. Let's try to explain it in as brief terms as I possibly can. The cipher turns each letter of the alphabet into a five-bit binary string. So A, for instance, is 00000. B is 00001. C is 0010 zero, 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 and D would be 0011 zero, zero, one, one, and so on and so forth. So it would follow the binary pattern, not, not the ordinary counting. There's no twos or threes in this. It's just zero or one on or off. You then take any text, Hamlet, Macbeth, whatever. It doesn't matter what the words say. You can take any text, disregard spaces, disregard punctuation, and just use each string of five letters to indicate one binary letter, one after another. So logically, the text that you want to hide something in is going to have to be at least five times larger than whatever your code message is, because for each one letter of your code, you're going to require five letters of the ordinary text, whatever that text is. So what you do is you treat all the normal characters as zeros, and then you do something to the font face in some way. So you italicize it, you make it bold, you choose a different font face. So instead of Times New Roman, that one might be Ariel or whatever and that character then acts as a one. Okay, conveniently, the classic line, to be or not to be, that is the question, is 35 characters long, so we could encipher a seven-letter message in it. You would read whatever the actual sentence itself says, and instead you would check the string of characters, five letters at a time, looking for mixed font faces. That would indicate which binary each string represented. Then you'd convert those binaries back into their corresponding letters, and thus you would retrieve the original clear text message. If this steganographic cipher, that's what it is, it's a hidden cipher, it sounds esoteric and time consuming and possibly even a bit bonkers, you'll be thrilled to know that in 2006, High Court Judge Mr. Justice Peter Smith did a, a kind of a much simpler version of the same thing in his judgment on none other than the Dan Brown Da Vinci Code plagiarism case. Now, the Da Vinci Code for the uninitiated is all about secret historical codes and code breaking, and in his case he rendered certain letters in italics that was the one effectively as opposed to the zero. Mr Justice Smith then spelled out a code that could be cracked, forgive me for a second as I go full nerd, that could then be cracked by using the Fibonacci sequence as a means of applying a Caesar shift cipher which in turn spelled out a question and its answer. Okay, don't worry about the details. it. The point here, of course, is that people can and do play these sorts of games, whether for fun or for more serious reasons. But how could this be done in Shakespeare's day? I mean, Mr Justice Peter Smith was operating his laptop or computer, whatever. All he had to do is click on the italic button in all the right places. He could physically do it himself. But in the Elizabethan era, we are dealing with mechanical printing presses and whoever is operating them, you can't do this yourself not if you're talking about publishing a a play for the masses. There was, however, an interesting issue. So this was the time before massive factories churning out reams of exactly identical mass-produced goods, so it wasn't unusual for publishers to have sourced typefaces from all over the place and for batches of that typeface to be mismatched. The result was that it wasn't uncommon, especially for longer publications, to be printed using a fairly random mixture of faces and weights and styles throughout. And this would be so commonplace that mixed fonts wouldn't have especially caught the eye. And so you can see how this could be a perfect opportunity for hiding secret messages in plain sight for the enlightened reader to discover. So, moving on, back to Ignatius L. Donnelly. By 1888, he'd published The Great Cryptogram, but this book, along with several of Donnelly's other publications, were ultimately deemed questionable, pseudoscientific, or outright wrong. Momentum was building, however. Three years later, by 1891, Orville Ward Owen, an American physician, had also written a book on the matter, Sir Francis Bacon's Cipher Story. And this is time to hang on to your hats, because the Da Vinci Code is going to seem tame after this. So, Owen's book revealed numerous incredible bombshells. According to him, if you correctly deciphered the Shakespeare canon, it revealed a scandalous Elizabethan history reaching to the very pinnacle of the aristocracy itself. Yes, apparently, Bacon was the true author of the works of Shakespeare, but this trivial detail paled into complete insignificance compared to the rest of the revelations. He was, according to this secret history, the true Tudor heir to the throne. But how was this incredible matter possible? The cipher explained it all. Bacon was the eldest secret love child of Queen Elizabeth I and Robert Dudley. Dudley and the Queen had married in secret and had two children, Bacon and Robert Devereux. Notably, Deborah would genuinely later on plot to overthrow Queen Elizabeth, er, uh, his own mother, according to this theory. Being a merciful parent, she would promptly have him beheaded for his attitude. But Owen's book contains still more. On her deathbed, perhaps full of remorse, the Queen confesses to her marriage and is just about to name Bacon as her successor when her Lord Privy Seal poisons and strangles her, thus squelching Bacon's chance at becoming the rightful king. Inconvenient, if true. But there's more still. Romeo and Juliet apparently hides within it Bacon's own romantic fling with the Queen of France. I mean, come on, Tommy, this isn't better than any actual Shakespeare you've ever read. How did Owen arrive at this rather fantastic insight? Okay, well, he had this thing called a cipher wheel. It was like a giant treadmill. And he'd glued onto it innumerable passages from Bacon, Shakespeare and others. These were collated on the basis of some keyword or phrase This, he said, was the word cipher, and as the treadmill turned, these keywords lit up. Owen also drew on the works normally attributed to Bacon, Shakespeare, Robert Greene, George Peel, Edmund Spencer and Robert Burton, all of whom he believed had been written by Bacon. Now, as I've said before, I don't have any issue with Owen asking the question. I don't even have issues with him starting with a specific candidate like Bacon. I mean, why not? You could include or exclude based on the results. Unfortunately, though, even the most cursory analysis pokes so many holes in this method and its application. Not least, deciding that someone has definitely written a bunch of texts before you even analyse if that self same person has written some other bunch of texts is putting at least half of your conclusions before your analysis, and it entirely messes up your dataset and any results you derive from it. Your known texts can be composed of a whole set of texts whose authorship you've just disputed. But that's just the start of it. Elizabeth and William Friedman, famous cryptologists of the day, and they are well worth an episode in their own right, studied the book and Owen's keyword method, and I'll quote this one paragraph from them about it. Taking all the various sources together, the number of keywords is vast, but this has not prevented some assiduous scholar from counting them and finding the total to be about 10,650. Owen had plenty to choose from. With these figures, what is surprising is that he does his job so badly. It would seem plausible that there should be a keyword very near, if not actually within any text he cared to choose. But again, Dr. Mann puts a telling argument against him. He finds that in one instance, the keyword is 47 lines away from the quotation taken, And in a large number of instances it is not even to be found on the same page. When a rule becomes so flexible that there is nothing which counts as breaking it, it can no longer be said to be a rule at all. Essentially, Owen's method is nonsense. He allows himself so much latitude in how he supposedly finds and then interprets these bits of the code that he could have created any history, any explanation, any narrative at all, really, had he wanted to. I mean, he was very creative in the one that he came up with, but he could have come up with all sorts. Maybe he knew that. Maybe he was just playing to the crowd. I mean, maybe he thought that the glamour of a hidden history buried in a secret cipher for centuries would sell. The events of the era, however, suggest that he genuinely believed in it and was very confident about his work at the time. So much so, He actually began hunting for 66 lead-lined boxes containing original Shakespeare manuscripts hidden in or around Chepstow Castle. When searches of the nearby caves turned up nothing, in 1909 he began excavating the actual bed of the River Wye. Media attention was soon fixed on the matter and a small army of men were hired to do the digging and the shoring up. Unfortunately, however, unless a Roman bridge or a medieval cistern count as hidden historical literature, his search otherwise turned up nothing. Despite these failures and problems, famous literary figures picked up the theory and ran with it. In the same year that Owens was digging up the Y, 1909, Mark Twain and his circle declared that it was possible to find the coded signature Francisco Bacono, in a sequence of letters from Shakespeare's famous first folio. And, unfortunately, celebrity can sometimes persuade where science cannot. But Twain wasn't the only one to find hidden clues in that first folio either, so remember that poem I read out from it a bit ago, I think back in the first episode. Petter Amundsen, a Norwegian code enthusiast, took this poem to refer to a number. Specifically, that of two. Two can indeed be found written acrostically in the first, third and fifth lines together. I would add here that you can also find the word woe, woah, W-O-A-H, acrostically written using the first letters of the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh lines. A mine are all contiguous too, but who am I to judge an acrostic that inexplicably skips across lines? So Amundsen has also published works detailing steganographic, that is, hidden, codes and gematria throughout Shakespeare's work, his epitaph, and the Stratford Monument, and all taken together. These supposedly point towards Sir Francis Bacon writing the Shakespeare canon alongside Sir Henry Neville. But, of course, we have to go full Dan Brown again. These same codes apparently also reveal that Bacon and Neville are Rosicrucians. If you don't know what Rosicrucians are, to simplify it right down to two words, I'm just going to say fancy masons. It's an entire other episode in its own right anyway. So their membership of this lofty, secret, learned cabal is apparently given away by Masonic references, and as it happens, many of Bacon's books do bear the watermark R.C. But we'll also come back to how tricky, apparently obvious initials on bits of paper can be later. And there's more. There is always more. Amundsen believes that Shakespeare's manuscripts will be found alongside the Ark of the Covenant and the Menorah on Oak Island, Nova Scotia. By this point, you might have started to wonder if at least some of this code-breaking and deciphering is actually, well, just nonsense. After all, the Voynich manuscript has repeatedly demonstrated that if you look hard enough for signal in the noise, your brain will eventually crack and just try to give you something. It's a sort of apophenia, this human tendency to find patterns in chaos, We find shapes in clouds. We find faces in wood grains. There are entire Twitter accounts dedicated to this. I love it. Faces in things. We find secret messages in plays. And if we go back to Owen, who really propelled the whole cipher angle along, we find pretty much exactly the same problem. As has happened so often through history, Owen had united this determination that he would find something to a generously loose interpretation of the data, and he'd multiplied it with a great reverence for Bacon. So this dangerous cocktail meant that Owen ended up discovering something just as he intended, and it turned out to be just what he was looking for. The story that Bacon was not merely an extraordinary author, but also a super-extraordinary individual. This is not coincidence, it is simply confirmation bias. Everything that fed into his story he likely readily accepted, and anything that contradicted it he likely disregarded as an exception or a mistake or an aberration or whatever, rather than seeing it as a reflection on his method. Owens eventually died, penniless, bedridden, and deeply regretful that he had sacrificed his reputation to the controversy. But despite warning others not to make his mistake, his assistant, Elizabeth Wells Gallup, would go on to do more or less the same thing anyway. Determined to find secrets in the text, she claimed to be able to identify instances of the bilateral cipher, but when this was put to the test, the supposedly alternative font faces were often indistinguishable from the rest of the text or there were simply too many alternative fonts and the apparent rules being followed to identify the cipher strings were no more rigorous than Owen's methods had been. In fact, it would be Gallup's own assistant, the Elizabeth Friedman that I just mentioned a minute ago, who would recognise this for the nonsense that it unfortunately was. But not all Baconia turned from airy dreams into river-dredging nightmares. In the mid-1590s, Bacon had written his personal diary. Promus. I love the idea that he actually gave it a proper title. I've no idea what I'd call mine if I still kept one. Anyway, in 1891, just as Owen's book on the ciphers was coming out, Mary Fearon Pott also saw in Bacon's diary, Promus, evidence that he was the true Shakespeare, and her examples are a little bit more concrete. So she noted thematic, linguistic, and literary similarities, the use of certain proverbs and phrases and so forth, between Bacon's work and those attributed to Shakespeare, so-called parallelisms. But here, the similarities seem to end. Bacon's known writings are stylistically very different to the works of Shakespeare. He was a prose writer, he penned classic essays, and on that same basis, some argue that he simply lacked the skills required to be a great dramatist. But others have countered this by pointing out that yes, he may have written prose, but it was very poetic and this is seen as evidence that he possessed the skill to write in two distinctly different styles. And there is other circumstantial support for the theory. Bacon had a Cambridge education, a background more consistent with the upper-class, well-educated depictions in his plays than that suggested by Shakespeare's more humble origins. And as I've noted, he was Queen Elizabeth I's legal advisor, the very first Queen's counsel, in fact, Baconia therefore suggests that the great number of legal allusions in the Shakespeare canon demonstrate the author's expertise in the law, which only Bacon, apparently, could possess given his education and career history. Now, if all this were true, though, why wouldn't Bacon simply own the work? Why not just stick his own name on it? Well, the argument goes that the Lord Chancellor of England wouldn't want to be tainted with the reputation of a lowly playwright. An essayist is elite, learned, erudite, if rather less generally entertaining. His works are intended for the cultured and noble. By contrast, plays are seen as sop for the unwashed masses. It's like the way that dramas like EastEnders and Coronation Street are seen as mass entertainment and certainly not as highbrow. So, such direct associations with low audiences and populist ribaldry of the stage could even hinder Bacon's career potential. And therefore, a pen name would actually be very useful. He could still write, and even earn if necessary, he did have money troubles later on in life. Perhaps he could even secretly relish in his fame, all whilst carefully safeguarding his increasingly influential position. But there was yet more evidence. In 1910, Sir Edwin Dunning-Lawrence, and we will come back to him in just a minute, managed to take the nonce word, forgive me, honorificabilitudinitatibus. That one. I can't say it fast. I just can't. I've tried. He managed to take that nonce word and mangle out some Latin from it that supposedly declared, these plays F. Bacon's offspring are preserved for the world. Okay, sure. And in her 1922 book on ciphers, Natalie Rice-Clark declared that simply by laying a cosmological diagram over the Tempest's epilogue, as one often does, one could find the craftily hidden message I, am F Bacon. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, okay, well, anyway. Perhaps unsurprisingly, by the 1920s, support for Baconia had begun to fade. Having amassed so many associations with disproven fringe conspiracies and very questionable methods, the theory started to lose both popularity and momentum. This angle, it seemed, was destined to end up as a mere footnote in only the more esoteric history books. But then, for a brief moment, Baconia was back in the limelight. Remember that, for a long time, the first questions over Shakespeare's authorship were dated to the middle of the 1800s, either a book about yachting that wasn't really about yachting, and that anonymous journal article. Like, essentially, no one had much reason to suspect that the doubts predated roughly the 1850s. It'd be lovely to see if there is some real documentation from before then, but as far as we know, that's where it dates back to. But then, that enthusiastic Baconian, Sir Edwin Dunning Lawrence, remember him from that Latin word that I can't say. Anyway, he died in 1914, and 15 years later, his substantial 17th century archive was donated to the University of London. Now, as would befit a very wealthy anti-Stratfordian whose candidate of choice was Bacon, his archive was a treasure trove of books and papers by Bacon and Shakespeare and others, and they were soon on display in the university's library. Not long after this, in 1932, in amongst the many volumes, a young scholar discovered a manuscript entitled Some Reflections of the Life of William Shakespeare, written by one James Corton Cowell. This is sometimes just referred to as the Reflections Manuscript. Now, in this manuscript, Cowell gives an account of two lectures by a Reverend James Wilmot. These lectures were supposedly given in 1805 to the Ipswich Philosophic Society, and they concerned the truth about Shakespeare. Reverend Wilmot was an utterly unremarkable Warwickshire clergyman who lived in Stratford in the 1700s. But according to this reflection's manuscript, as early as the 1780s, Wilmot had supposedly started to question whether Shakespeare could have authored the canon ascribed to him. This would be 70 years before Yacht Guy put pen to paper about the matter, thus moving the origins of the Shakespeare authorship question back by a considerable margin. Apparently, The Good Reverend's concerns were first raised when he couldn't find a single book or record belonging to Shakespeare, despite apparently searching every old private library within 50 miles of Stratford. Quite why he would be inspired to do this, I do not know, but there we go. So determined to find out the truth, he tried to locate any authentic anecdotes about Shakespeare in or around Stratford, but he couldn't find a single one. Thus, after his extensive study of local history and evidence, by 1781, Reverend Wilmot had made up his mind. Shakespeare could not have authored the works attributed to him. Therefore, he conjectured, and again, quite why this leap happens, I don't know, therefore, he conjectured, Sir Francis Bacon had. However, the story goes, finding himself alone in his suspicion and afraid of being mocked for harbouring fringe conspiracy theories Wilmot destroyed all of his findings, as you do, leaving only Cowell and his manuscript in possession of the truth. Now, as always seems to be the case with these things, the manuscript just vanishes for over a century until it suddenly resurfaces in this donated archive in the 1930s. And from the moment that this manuscript is discovered to the turn of the millennia, the statements in it are just accepted. But then, in 2002, not even 20 years ago, or, well, I suppose it might be next year by the time you're listening to this, people began to ask questions. They began to dig through history. They started looking for records of this James Corton Cowell, this Ipswich Philosophic Society, its president, Arthur Kobold. But no traces of any of them seemed to exist. Strike one. Historical analyses, too, reveal several anachronisms, so given that the manuscript was supposedly penned anywhere around about between 1780 and 1805, it mentions facts that were only discovered decades later. Strike two. And then an expert in paper history notes that, though the paper does indeed seem to originate from the right time period about the mid-1790s, it's drawing paper rather than writing paper, not something that would usually be used for a lengthy work of this nature. Hmm, sounds like strike three. Ultimately, most scholars are now satisfied that the Reflections manuscript is a forgery. But even if we accept that, it still raises questions about the identity of the forger, quite when they acted, what they were hoping to achieve. I mean, Dunning-Lawrence, who had published at least four books on the Baconian Argument, had clearly never referred to the document despite its apparently sensational relevance. It may then have been secreted into the archive after his death, but why would someone go to all the trouble of sourcing paper from the correct era, finding a real individual who lived at the right time and in the right place, inventing a whole lecture in a philosophical society and numerous characters, and then planting the finished article in an archive, in the hopes that it would be found, recognised, published about, believed? We will never know. But one fairly believable explanation is that it was a rather elaborate plot to revive the Baconian theory. As I've said, Baconia was losing momentum and adherence, and this may have been a last-ditch effort to bring it fully back into mainstream conversation. But the problem for Baconia actually ran deeper than this. People weren't getting bored of the Shakespeare authorship question. They were getting bored of Bacon, and they were switching allegiances. There was a new favourite true Shakespeare in town, and his name was Edward de Vere. 17th Earl of Oxford, Viscount of Bulbeck. Lord Great Chamberlain, lyric poet, court playwright, champion jouster, and, if I understand Nelson's book Monstrous Adversary correctly, he was also a recklessly ambitious, financially illiterate, willfully irresponsible, resentful, antagonistic, dangerous monster. Born in 1550, by the time he died in 1604, in his mid-50s, he had been involved in numerous clashes with other powerful families that had resulted in multiple killings. He had failed on a list of promises and assurances to those close to him, he had obliterated most of his family fortune, irreparably damaged his reputation and good standing with Queen Elizabeth I, and there's more, but even for a podcast about crime, it's the really grim stuff. You should only go look it up if you have a very high threshold for how awful humans can be, so consider yourself warned. Anyway, whatever we know of him now, or knew then but decided to ignore, the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, had become, and some say he still is, the new pet theory in answer to the Shakespeare authorship question. As ever, Oxfordia's explanation for why he would use a pen name is the same as for Bacon and most of the other suggested candidates. To write for commoners, for money, was derisable, but de Vere would have probably felt this even more acutely than Bacon. Small aside, from highest to lowest, the British peerage ranks run thus. Duke at the top, Marquess, Earl, Viscount, And Baron at the bottom. So these are the five tiers, excluding the monarch, obviously. Bacon was well connected and successful, yes, but his titles, first Viscount, first Baron, were both new creations, one at the very bottom of the rankings and one just one level above. Bacon's ascension to the aristocracy was new, his connection tenuous, more derived from service than from ancestry, and he was lower in the peerage pecking order. By contrast, de Vere was an earl and a viscount, that's levels 2 and 3, Duke is 5 at the top. Thus he outranked Bacon, but more than that, he was the 17th earl of Oxford, and this earldom was the second oldest in the country. In aristocratic terms, Bacon was a newcomer, an upstart, a contemptible social climber even. De Vere was old money and ancient lineage that could be traced back to the Empress Matilda. Again, I swear I am not making this up. In 1141. Whatever the opinions on such matters now, historically these details made enormous differences socially, legally, politically. Such lineage was an extremely potent shield, it could protect its bearer from all manner of consequences of their actions. And de Vere really put this to the ultimate test throughout his life, but it couldn't protect him from everything. Even a wealthy, powerful, obstinate man like de Vere couldn't just wake up one day, decide to write plays for the masses, and not find himself scornfully derided by his peers and subordinates. Indeed, the fact that he is the 17th Earl of Oxford would arguably make it even worse, that a man so high should stoop so low. But none of this explains why he has been picked as the new Shakespeare. Well, in 1920, J. Thomas Loney wrote Shakespeare identified, and Shakespeare's in scare quotes, and it contained a list of general and specific features which any candidate author of Shakespeare's works would apparently have. So, a psychological and sociological profile, if you will. Now, there's a lot to it, so I'll try to summarise the main points. From pages 109 to 117, he outlines the general features of Shakespeare's personality. That he is of a recognised, recorded genius, mysterious, enigmatic, eccentric. His nature or his circumstances, or probably both, were not normal. He is a man apart, aloof, unconventional, not adequately appreciated an Englishman known for his literary tastes and with an enthusiasm for drama, well known as a talented lyric poet, and of superior classical education. But Loney goes further and derives what might be called very loosely a psycholinguistic profile from his writing. When it came to feudalism, the author was apparently not the kind of man we should expect to rise from the lower middle-class population of the towns. Rather, his writings reveal an intimate personal connection with aristocracy and depict lower-class characters in a way which reveals that he does not know the class from within. Consistent with this, he exhibits familiarity with the royal pastimes of hunting and a negligent attitude towards money. This would also be an expected attitude from poets and writers more concerned with lofty moral issues than such earthly matters. Quite amusingly, Loney also thinks that the writer demonstrates a sympathy for the Lancastrian cause, particularly in Richard II and III. I'm going to leave that for the real aficionados of Shakespeare's works to determine. Anyway, the writer also apparently reveals a general enthusiasm for Italy, given how many of the plays are based there, a love of music, sympathies with the Catholic Church as opposed to Puritanism, and an interestingly mixed attitude towards women, part affectionate, part bitter. So who fulfils this profile? Who wears such an intriguingly shaped glass slipper? Loney took his profile on tour and began to apply it to a range of candidate authors to see whose foot would fit, so to speak, and to make an otherwise extremely long account short, he compared Venus and Adonis with many other 16th century poets within an anthology. Ah, he doesn't tell us the anthology, and he doesn't tell us how many poems, and he doesn't tell us his criteria for inclusion or exclusion. But there we go. Using his very secret method, he created a short list of those which he felt were written in the form of stanza identical with that employed by Shakespeare. After that, he reread those he had identified, discarded any he felt were not similar enough, and ended up with two. One, which was anonymous, And one, Golden Treasury, which was by Edward de Vere. Thus armed, Loney got researching and he found an article written by Sir Sidney Lee. Lee was, incidentally, a Stratfordian, that is, someone who does not question the authorship of Shakespeare or is happy with the answer as it currently stands. Anyway, in his article, Lee describes de Vere as having a violent and perverse temper, an eccentric taste in dress, a genuine taste in music, and being a well-recognised courtier poet. We also have the unsurprising and in fact rather necessary credential that throughout his lifetime, de Vere was praised as a poet and a playwright. You can see where this is going. If you want to read Loney's lengthy explanation about how Edward de Vere fulfils his whole profile, including the general and the specific conditions that I listed a minute ago, read his book from chapter 4, page 144 onwards, or you can just skip to the more concise bulleted list on page 147. Now, in some ways, I don't completely hate this effort. So, Loney started out with a question, and he seems to have recognised that he couldn't just identify a possible real Shakespeare out of the whole world. So he's made an attempt to create a closed set. He's come up with a short list of prime suspects, and that's great. Then he's gone back to the language itself and run some comparisons, and he's come up with his final two candidates. Of course, only one could be studied, which rather begs the question, what about the anonymous author? Now, the problem with the whole thing, of course, is that you can have a reasonable idea, a reasonable project, and then you can absolutely murder the execution of it. How did he arrive at this profile? We only have glimpses of evidence. What was counted and what was discounted? Shakespeare is celebrated for being able to really get into characters So, how robust is it to guess at who he was when he's so busy being someone else in his plays? What I mean by this is if he is so busy enacting an entirely different identity, is it really safe to take his plays as autobiographical or a sort of biographical? Because he's pretending to be someone else. Fundamentally, he is not being himself. Also, why use the poem Venus and Adonis? Shakespeare was at least as famous for being a playwright and perhaps even more famous for that. So, why not use a play? multiple plays. And we don't know who the whole long list was. We don't know the anthology of poetry that he drew from. Why did he not include some people? How much did people have to deviate from Loney's profile to be cut off? Were any other factors outside of the profile taken into account? I mean, there are dozens more questions besides this, but you get the point. There's a lot left unsaid here. So by modern standards of, say, a forensic linguistic investigation, this wouldn't stand up for a second, because there's just way too many holes, way too many questions. Regardless, in 1921, just a year after the book's publication, Loney and several others created the Shakespeare Fellowship, an organisation which promoted Edward de Vere, or as they call him Oxford, as the real Shakespeare. This, by the way, is now known as the Shakespearean Authorship Trust that I mentioned way back. The popularity of Oxfordia has waxed and waned over time with the publication of various Oxfordian books and Stratfordian critiques. But interest was somewhat renewed in 2011 after the release of the German-British period drama Anonymous. Written by John Orloff and directed by Roland Emmerich, the film is a fictionalised portrayal of the life of Edward de Vere and it strongly intimates that he was the real author of Shakespeare's works. As you've probably gathered by now, though, the Oxfordian methodology usually doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. I've already pointed out some issues with Loney's treatise on the subject, but there are other problems besides. The overall sample of de Vere's writings is necessarily small. It barely totals a few thousand words altogether, which is tiny when compared with the millions of words to be found in the Shakespeare canon. Additionally, de Vere may have been venerated as a poet and a playwright in his lifetime, but only the poetry remains. We have no plays. Now these factors don't make analysis impossible, forensic linguists work with tinier data sets than this every day, but it certainly does circumscribe what can be done, and those factors absolutely should mitigate how confident we can be in any results we might arrive at. Further, as we've seen, Oxfordia often leans heavily on non linguistic, circumstantial, or what's sometimes called external evidence. For instance, Oxfordians will often draw on what I call the Batman principle. De Vere stopped publishing poetry under his name shortly after the first works attributed to Shakespeare appeared. You can see the argument here. For the most part, both names don't appear in print at the same time because De Vere has put on his Shakespeare bat cape and is now in disguise. Yeah, okay. De Vere also spent a considerable amount of time in Italy, and this, Oxfordia argues, accounts for the number of plays set there. Further, they argue, it's knowledge that Shakespeare couldn't have had, so they're using it to cut both ways. However, Shakespeare's plays actually get many details of Italian life wrong, including laws and urban geography. We come back to that one in a bit, it's a gem. And it's now conventionally believed that much of the information in the plays was probably derived from John Florio, so some of the idioms used can be traced back to some of the dialogue in Florio's works. Another piece of evidence put forward by Oxfordia is a Bible. This dates back to 1579, and it's a Geneva Bible that supposedly belonged to Oxford, and it has around a thousand underlined sections with a small handful of single-word notes. In 1992, Mark Anderson and Roger Strittmatter conducted a detailed examination of these annotations and from this, they determined that more than a quarter of the marked passages turn up as direct references in Shakespeare's plays. Honestly, though, I'm not even going to pretend like I find this compelling. I have a reasonably strong sense that if you underlined ten sentences at random in, I don't know, Pride and Prejudice, I bet with a little effort you could find supposedly direct links to them in all the transcripts for this podcast. And underlining is not exactly a blood-stained fingerprint. What would the evidence be that De Vere added the annotations and the underlinings in the first place? I have a few very old books that other people have annotated, and I honestly kind of hate them for it, because who writes in biro in a 200-year-old book? Anyway, just because that poor, defaced volume has now come into my possession, that doesn't make their moment of unbelievable vandalism mine. And it seems that others were of a similar mind. David Katzman published his own evidence, arguing that there is no clear correlation between the Geneva annotations and Shakespeare's biblical references. For instance, annotations in the Bible focus on 1 Samuel to 1 Kings, but Shakespeare barely used them. Likewise, the underlining marks out over a thousand verses, but Shakespeare alludes to at least 2,000 verses in his works. And as I've already mentioned, the overlap between the Geneva underlining and Shakespeare's actual references is surprisingly small. What other evidence is there? Well, Oxfordia makes a lot of de Vere's many links to the theatre and the writings of Shakespeare. In 1583, de Vere became the leaseholder of the first Blackfriars theatre in London. This had a lot of connections to Shakespeare. I mean, fair enough, but again, it's very circumstantial. In 1567, de Vere was admitted to Grey's Inn. This is one of the inns of court. And the clinching piece of evidence here? In Henry IV, part two, Justice Shallow reminisces about Grey's Inn. Again, I don't find this remotely compelling either. A fictional character mentioning a landmark that was already famous during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I is pretty tenuous for an authorship argument. And the rest of the evidence is even less impressive still. De Vere also has ties to the River Avon and a town called Stratford. That would apparently explain him being called the Bard of Stratford and the Swan of Avon. Some Oxfordians have also taken the name Swan of Avon to refer to the Avon River, flowing through Wiltshire where Mary Sidney lived. Sidney, in turn, had associations with De Vere. You can see how tenuous this is all starting to get. So some believed that she looked after his work once he died. I mean, to me, this all starts to sound like that game you play where someone gives you two entirely disconnected words and through a series of leaps you have to make them link. It's, yeah, okay. Another detail put forward sometimes is that in 1586, Queen Elizabeth I began giving Oxford an annuity of £1,000. That was a lot of money back then. And he continued to receive this until his death. The details are not clear on why he received this, but even a cursory glance at his financial affairs would probably suggest that it was because he was hemorrhaging money and drowning in debt. Oxfordia, though, posits that this can be explained by his secret playwright Double Life. The annuity was used to pay Shakespeare, the man from Stratford-upon-Avon, for holding the pseudonym. The evidence for this? One Reverend Dr John Ward and a 1662 diary entry from him stating that Shakespeare wrote two plays a year and spent at the rate of £1,000 a year. Yeah, there's circumstantial, and then there's that. Anyway, all of this supposition hits a rather large stumbling block known as linear time. Chronology. The awkward inconvenience that events obstinately continue to happen one after another in rigid sequential order and that we haven't yet mastered a way of organising matters differently. What am I talking about? Well, De Vere had the misfortune to die in 1604, 12 years before Shakespeare. Unfortunately, 12 plays appear to have been written after this. Of course, one might think that this would be rather awkward for the Oxfordian argument to explain away, but some actually pounce on this as further proof. It is, they suggest, an elaborate cover up. It's always an elaborate cover up, but anyway. By continuing to publish pre-written plays after his death, it removes suspicion from De Vere because very obviously dead men can't write. And the reason that so many of the late plays show evidence of revision and collaboration is because they were completed by other playwrights after De Vere's death. Thus, this is a clever ploy to hide his authorship and therefore it proves that De Vere was the author. Okay, anyway. Last but not least, if we accept that no documentary evidence connects the Stratford Glover's son, that is the William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon, to the plays of Shakespeare, then we have to accept that the exact same issue is in play here too. No documentary evidence connects Oxford to the plays either. Okay, so De Vere is, at least as far as this all suggests, not a particularly compelling Shakespeare. The documentary evidence is missing, the plays are gone, the timing is all messed up and the little evidence that can be collected together is pretty much all circumstantial or problematic in some way. Is there another, better candidate? Someone gifted in the art of disguise, capable of maintaining a persona, professionally trained to pass amongst us his real identity unrecognised? Well, what about... A spy. Who is this international man of mystery? He is. Coming up in the next episode. End of part three of six. If you're interested in more Shakespeare content from linguists at Lancaster, then search the internet for Future Learn Shakespeare's language, those four words, Future Learned Shakespeare's Language. This free online course is all about both revealing the meanings in the works and exploring the myths about Shakespeare in general. And as a bonus, you get introduced to corpus-based methods for analysing Shakespeare. What's not to love? This episode was researched and fact-checked by my research assistant, Rebecca Jagodzinski and my intern, Debbie Tomkinson. And it was narrated and produced by me, Dr. Claire Hardacre. I am also extremely grateful for all the input I've had from the renowned Shakespeare authority, Professor Jonathan Culpepper, creator of that online course I mentioned, who has patiently entertained this whole miniseries idea from inception to gruesome, bloody execution. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many, many others, you can find acknowledgements and references at the blog. Also there, you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases, and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash onclair. and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore enclair, or if you like, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire H.